We're in the middle of the Easter season. And if you're new to this thing of mapping your life according to the life of Christ, we call it the church calendar, then, then you might not realize, but Easter lasts 50 days. It lasts from Easter Sunday until the Sunday when we celebrate Pentecost, when God poured out his spirit on the church. These 50 days... And what we're doing for these 50 days is we're actually walking through the various encounters that Jesus had in those 50 days after he rose from the dead. So you can kind of think about this in your mind. 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. And then for 40 days, he encountered his disciples. Then he ascended into heaven and 10 days later, he poured out his spirit. So we're taking our time and we're just kind of going through these stories that talk about various encounters Jesus and his disciples had and conversations that they had. We're retracing those visits. And the reason we're doing this is we're trying to get a handle on what the resurrection meant and on how the early followers of Jesus understood Jesus himself to explain his resurrection. And how it impacted their lives. And what we've been seeing is that the early Christians believed that the resurrection had begun with Jesus. That it wasn't a one-time thing. His resurrection was a one-time thing. But that resurrection was a much larger slice of reality. And that the resurrection begun by Jesus would finally be accomplished and completed In the final resurrection on the last day. And these early followers of Jesus, when they talked about the resurrection, they weren't spending their energy focusing on heaven. And this is something we've really got to come to grips with. When they focused on the resurrection, they focused on life now. Oftentimes you'll hear people today talking about the resurrection means, oh, whatever's going on in life now might be bad, but it'll be better in the by and by when we die and go to heaven. Now that does come up later in the New Testament in the epistles when they began to deeply theologize the resurrection, when people began to die, when they began to go through persecution. But in the early stages, when Jesus was unpacking his resurrection and when his followers were coming to grips with us, it was a serious focus on what it meant for life this side of death. What Jesus' resurrection had to do with life now. That God had called his followers to work with him, to work with God in the power of the Spirit in the present to implement the achievement of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that when we do that, when we focus on what the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago means for you and me now, 2,000 years later, when we do that by recognizing it is a call to work with God in implementing what Jesus actually achieved, when we do this in the power of the Spirit, now we are anticipating the final resurrection. In other words, these early Christians, they believed that the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of a whole new phase in world history. That a door had actually been turned. That things were different. 
as different as life is for us after 9-11, if, if any of you flew on airplanes before and after 9-11, it has changed everything. Do any of you remember going to the airport when you could walk up to the gate to tell your family bye? Or whoever was getting on the airplane? You could just traipse right through the airport? I mean, you probably could have walked on the plane if you wanted to and said hi to them before they left. Everything is different now. The early Christians believed that 9-11 wasn't a hinge point. The Enlightenment wasn't the turning point. Gutenberg's press wasn't the turning point. That the resurrection of Jesus changed life. It changed the nature of reality. Something started. And God's new world is actually here. Just like in spring, tulips break through the ground. That Jesus' resurrection was a breaking through the ground of this new way of living. Of God's new power to make all things new. And that now God is collaborating with his followers to take this resurrection project forward. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus means that we've got work to do. That there are things God wants to do in Harrisonburg, in the valley, in collaboration with you. There is something for you and me to do in this place where we live There is a contribution to make. One of the great points of being a Christian is to learn how to spot what actually needs to be done and to get on with doing it. Now this morning, we're turning to the last chapter in John's gospel. We were there last week. We're returning to it. And we're looking at actually the last half of John chapter 21. And we're seeing that our work for God, our work for the kingdom, our implementation of the achievement of Jesus, that the way we do this is for each of us, listen very close here, for each of us to be who God made us to be. And by doing that, we bring the gift of ourself to this world. That is the big battle that Jesus is having with Peter. Now we're going to camp out here because for so many of us, we've got this mantra in our head, more of God, less of me. And we think that Christianity is leaving ourselves, denying ourselves, becoming not human, but godly. As if human and godly are two different things. We've got these sayings in our language, to err is human, I'm just a human. All of these ways of deprecating humanity, even though at the climax of John's gospel, we have Pilate looking at Jesus, the son of God, and saying, behold the human, real humanity. Look, discipleship is becoming truly human and truly yourself. And this is where the end of John's gospel waits. It's where the weight of John's gospel sits here in chapter 21. That the way we contribute, the way we collaborate with God, the way we implement the achievement of the resurrection is for each of us to become who we were made to be and thereby to bring the gift Of our unrepeatably unique self to the world. I'm going to take the rest of this message and next week's 
to swim around in John chapter 21 and to see how this is coming through in scene after scene. Let's dive in. Our passage this morning, John chapter 21, verses 15 to 25, it's actually composed of two different scenes, if you didn't notice, and an epilogue of sorts. This week we're going to focus on the second scene. Next week we'll look at the first scene. Let's look at the second scene, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him, and he said, Lord... Who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, the first scene that we're going to dig into next week, verses 15 to 19, Jesus asked Peter a question. Do you love me, right? In the second scene, Peter asked Jesus a question. What about this man? Right? There's this kind of dialogue going on. In the first scene, Jesus asks Peter a question and he gives him a unique job to be the leader of the church. We'll get to that next week. And here in the second scene, we find Peter looking at Jesus. Apparently, the two of them are walking down the beach. Peter turns around and he sees John. I don't know how far away. A little bit off. And he says, Jesus, well, what's John's job? Or or maybe we're not exactly sure. You know, one of the things Jesus had just told Peter, he had basically a twofold job, right? To be the leader of the church and to die a martyr's death. And now Jesus and Peter are walking along. They're having this very intimate conversation where Jesus does with Peter something. I don't know he's done with anybody in all of scripture. He forecasts a life a long way off that's going to die in a very tragic way. And he says, this is your calling. You know, that's an interesting calling to have to live under. So John, Peter turns around and he says, what about him? (laughs) Now we don't, you don't really know how to interpret Peter's question. Until you hear Jesus' response. And Jesus, in his response, gives us some sense of what Peter must have meant. The weight, the inflection he must have used, the attitude he must have had. Because Jesus' response is basically a rebuke, right? If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Isn't this the same thing so many of you parents have done with your kids, right? You tell one kid to do a chore and it's like, what about so-and-so? And you're like... It doesn't matter, right? Your chore is to cut the grass and paint the house. And we'll come back at the end of the weekend. But isn't that a sense of what Jesus is saying? I'm your daddy. It, don't ma- it doesn't matter what I said for John. You have this job to do. Now, it appears to me that Peter's jealous of John. And the reason I think Peter is jealous of John is because of the texture of the literature Up to this point. You see when you step back. And you read John's gospel. As a single narrative. And you don't read it as a group of pithy little sayings. But it's a whole. right? It's a story. You see there's been this interesting dynamic at play. Between Peter and John all along. Especially toward the end. They're they're linked throughout John's gospel. And, And over and over, whenever Peter and John are in the same scene, Peter fails and John succeeds. 
especially over the course of the crucifixion weekend and the resurrection, there are five distinct moments where John succeeds and Peter fails. In chapter 13, verse 23 through 25, they're at the Lord's Supper. Who is it whose head is laying on the breast of Jesus? Who is it that whispers to Jesus, who's going to betray you? It's John. Now look, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, a culture of honor, shame. Honor and shame is inscribed into proxemics. Proxemics is the study of proximity and how it relates to power. So you go into, you know, I don't know, Exxon's main boardroom, who sits at the head of the table, who sits to the right of the CEO, who sits to the left, who sits buried in the inn somewhere. Proximics is how proximity physically to someone indicates power, honor, and shame. Who is next? Do you remember one of the big arguments was, who gets to be next to you, Jesus? And when we get to the Lord's Supper, who is next to Jesus? John. And what is Peter doing at the Lord's Supper? Does anybody remember? Arguing with Jesus. Don't wash my feet. Oh, wash my whole body. Like, he doesn't know what's going on. Every time you see him at the Last Supper, failure. When you see John, intimacy. Chapter 18, verse 15. At the trial. Guess who has an in to the, to the trial area? Peter. John. John is the one who knows people. And so John gets Peter in because he knows the authorities. Once again, John looking good. Peter looking like some lackey. At chapter 19, verse 25. Who is it standing close to Jesus at the foot of the cross to whom Jesus gives care of his mother? John. And this, is, this one's a little bit unique than the others because Peter's not there, but he's not there conspicuously. His silence dominates the scene. Where is Peter? Isn't Peter the one who confessed, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God? Isn't the Peter the one who said, I will not deny you. I will die. Even when all these other chumps walk away from you, it won't be me. And now suddenly who's there? John. And Peter is not. And then in chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, when the women return to the disciples and they announce the resurrection of Jesus, and there's a foot race. Who wins? Who gets to the tomb first? John. And who is the only disciple to come to faith at the tomb? John. You see, by the time you get to chapter 21 and they're fishing and they're out in the boat and a stranger shows up on the shore and only one of the disciples recognizes who it is. You already know who that's going to be. John. And John has to tell Peter it's Jesus. So now when you get to the end of John chapter 21 and you have Peter looking at Jesus saying, what about him? I think it's a guy who's fed up to hear. I mean, because, because here's the key. What was the last thing Jesus said to Peter in verse 18? Jesus, in verses 15 to 18, Jesus says, Peter, I want you to be the leader of the church and you're going to die a martyr's death. And then in verse 19, the last words of Jesus to Peter. Anybody have them? What are they? Follow me. Very next verse. Now your Bibles mess you up here because it's got a subject heading and you stop reading there. But take that subject heading out. Follow me. Very next verse, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. For one bleak, brief, fleeting moment, Peter has this preeminence among the disciples. He's the leader. 
And once again, here's John beating him to the punch. Already doing what Peter's just been commanded to do. Follow me. He looks back. John's doing it. I think Peter is saying, upstaged again. And Jesus' answer to Peter, butt out. It's none of your business. What I want to do with him is my own business. It is not yours. If I want him to live forever, isn't this the kind of like hyperbole we parents use? If I want him to go to the moon, I will. It's your job to clean your room. If I want him to live forever, he will. What business is this of yours, Peter? This is your problem, Peter. You concentrate on following me. That is your calling. Follow me. Lead my church. And don't waste any more of your time or your energy looking over your shoulder at at John or at anyone else. Forget comparisons, Peter. Concentrate on your own unique identity. Your own calling. You, the emphasis in the Greek is you follow me. One of the most crippling temptations in life is to compare ourselves with others. What Jesus is saying here and what we heard from from Glenn's reading in 1 Corinthians 12. We all have different gifts. Different ways the Lord has made us and equipped us. He's given us each different callings. Peter and John have been on stage together for almost the entire gospel. We see them together at the Last Supper. We see them together at the arrest and the trial and the resurrection. But now their paths are going to diverge. Even if you don't interpret Peter's question as, a, as, an, as an act of jealousy. Some people interpret it as an act of love. Does he have to die this way too? But even if you interpret it that way. Their paths are diverging. And Jesus is saying, you have your calling. And John has his calling. Part of our obedience is to know that we are called to follow Jesus by being who we were made to be. I love the way John Calvin talked about this scene. He said there can be a harmful curiosity that causes us to be drawn away from our duty by looking elsewhere. There's a lot of things to do. I've been saying over and over to be a Christian is to notice what needs to get done and to get on the business of doing it. There's too much. And there's, too, and there's a lot of people that have their own unique calling. Our job Is to discover who we were made to be. And to be that person. What God does with another is entirely up to God. You follow me. Be the you that I have made you to be. Peter's call is to love Jesus by taking really good care of the flock. Right? Three times. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Holy cow. This will mess me up. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. You know what John's calling was? To write a gospel. That's John's calling. 
Peter's called to lead the church and to die a martyr's death. We see that in verses 15 through 19. And John's call is to write a gospel. We see that in verse 20. In some way, John is still with us as the author of this gospel. It's not just Peter and John whom God calls. God has prepared for each one of us a unique and original adventure. Think about this. Those of you who've read the Bible, every time there is a story of faith in the Bible, it is completely original. It's original, it's unique. God's creative genius is endless. God never resorts to mass producing copies. Each life is a fresh canvas on which he uses lines and colors and shades and textures and proportions. Stuff that he's never used before. This is Psalm 139. When God knit you together in your mother's womb, he gave you a soul. He gave you your own deepest identity. He gave you your true self. In your mother's womb, God placed inside of you your own unique blueprint. Science knows this on a biological level. Welcome to the party. We've known this in our heritage from the beginning. In your mother's womb, God gave you a unique identity. And and you're given the span of years to discover it. To choose it and to offer the unrepeatably unique gift of who God made you to be to this world. Look, Jesus is saying to Peter, you don't get to create your calling. You don't get to make you. That's my job. Your job is to hear what I've made you and to choose it. And this is at the heart of being a follower of Jesus. To be a disciple is to become truly human... And truly yourself. So much of discipleship is about discovering the false mask we wear. And and recovering the you inside of all of that. When I say this is your calling, I'm saying that this is much bigger than your calling is much bigger than your job. Your calling is the unique, unrepeatable gift of you to bring that to the world. Remember last Sunday's sermon, how much God loves you, how incredible you are to God. And then God takes you. And like in the Lion King, Simba, he holds you up to the world. And he gives you to the world. That's what he's doing. He's giving you to the world. And this is, Irenaeus said, the glory of God is the human fully alive. The glory of God is for you to be you. It's for you to discover who God made you to be in Christ. And then to move into the world. And that can happen in a lot of different jobs. A lot of people don't get to pick their job. Your calling is to be you. Your job is part of your calling. Only to the extent that it enables you and enhances your offering of yourself in service to the world. Your calling, it's about the fact that that you are a dignity. You are 
a unique person. And the meaning of your life is to be the you God made you to be. Your calling is unique as your fingerprint is. Now let's just think about the new babies in our church. That's a fun thought, isn't it? Have y'all ever noticed how the train of child gets passed around throughout a service? Like sometimes before I'm done preaching, it's like eight people <laughs> have loved up on her. When we look at these babies, when you hold Marin, I hope you realize that you are in the presence of an unrepeatable uniqueness. I hope you stand in awe at the wonder of that life in your arms. Why has God sent Stella May into this world? That's a question we should ask. That's a question that needs to be on your mind when you're holding this, this unrepeatable uniqueness. Why did God send her here? How will Ian be different from every other human being that has ever existed? What are Lila's unique gifts? How can Marin fulfill her special purpose? You see, we fulfill Proverbs 22, 6 with these children. When we raise them up to be who they were made to be. Listen to this verse. Train up a child in the way he should go. What way should Ben, should Will Velker go? An artist? A soldier? A businessman? What, what is, what, what is, not, but even more deep, deeper than that, what, what is his identity? Who is he? And how will we not be a tyrannizing culture that forces will into our image? Train up a child in the way that one of the greatest challenges of being a parent is to not try to make your kids into your own image. To force, I mean, it takes a lot of wisdom to know the difference between disciplining a child into the ways of the Lord and ruining a child out of knowing who they were made to be. Some of you have experienced this. Some of you were raised well. You were loved well. Your parents drew out of you the wonderful, unrepeatable uniqueness of who God made you to be. But others of you, you were not raised well. There's two halves of life. Discovering who you were made to be and then living into that. And they're not weighted by years. Some people figure this out early and some people it's at the very end. But when you're around people who have discovered who God made them to be, it is remarkable. These are the kind of people that you feel so safe around. It's the kind of people who draw out of you. You. It's the kind of people who don't spend their life looking in narcissist's mirror and begging for attention. No, it's the kind of people who've already been attended to. Their parents attended to them. And they feel good about who they are. So they don't need your affirmation to establish their integrity, their wholeness, their worth. And these are the kind of people who can do it for others. To draw out of people the wonder of who they are. And once you know who you are, you no longer have a need to protect your identity, to defend it, to prove it. To assert it. It just is. And that's enough. 
The last words from the mouth of Jesus in John's gospel, it's verse 22. It's the the last words of Jesus in John's gospel is the same thing that he said to Peter. The very last thing you can find Jesus saying in the gospel of John is this. You follow me. Follow me. It's a rebuke to Peter. And it's a rebuke to us. Now we know from the rest of the story, as we keep reading in the New Testament, that Peter learned his lesson. He became who he was made to be. He wasn't perfect. I mean, he really messed up again, big time. And he gets Paul to help sort him out. But the overall trajectory of his life from this point forward is healed. He's come to the point where he can say, I will not try to run my own life. That is God's job. I will not be jealous of other people's calling. I will not try to run other people's lives. That is God's job. I will not strut about demanding that I be treated as the center of my family, as the center of my neighbors, as the center of my work. Instead, I will seek to discover where I fit in and I will do what I'm good at. When we look at Peter here at the end of John's gospel, what we see is a soul clamoring for attention, arrogantly parading about in self-imposed importance. And then suddenly, this clamorous, arrogant soul is calmed, rested and quieted by the love of Jesus so that he can be himself. Our lives are well lived only when they are lived according to the terms of their creation. The only way to have a well-lived life is to live who you were made to be. The only way to have a well-lived life is with God loving us and making us And God revealing to us who we were made to be. And God commanding us and with us responding. Being a Christian means accepting the terms of our creation. Instead of shaking our fist in the face of the creator and saying, why didn't you give me those brains or those looks or that money or that parent or that neighborhood or that country or that set of health or that set of issues? Why did you make me this way? The only way to have a well-lived life is to say, this is me. And inside of this is the real me. And coming to terms with our creation and accepting God as our maker and Christ as our redeemer and growing day by day into an increasingly glorious creature that is in Christ. Being filled with joy and love and peace. Jesus is alive. Therefore, new creation has begun. And listen, that new creation must first break out in your life. By healing you to be who you were made to be. And then our job. Is to take the gift of ourselves into this world. And to lay ourselves down in service to others 
as we follow Christ. Let's pray.